Now in 2 Nephi chapter 2, the choice is very clearly spelled out for us. It's an absolute masterpiece of a chapter as far as its doctrine is concerned. It's one of the best in the entire Book of Mormon. To the point that other later prophets will draw upon it and teach similar principles in similar ways. 2 Nephi 2 is the foundation for 2 Nephi 9. Because 2 Nephi 2 is Lehi teaching Jacob and 2 Nephi 9 is Jacob teaching the rest of us. And so much of what he conveys are things he learned from his dad. He was a good student. No wonder he ended up such a good teacher. Alma, later on, will teach in chapter 12 as well as chapter 42. Principles about agency and the plan of salvation that are first expressed most clearly by Lehi here in 2 Nephi chapter 2. This, this is foundational scripture, so it's really worth some sustained attention on our part. It's also important to realize who the initial audience was. There is so much profound truth in chapter 1 that's meant for all of us, but he was targeting Laman and Lemuel with most of what he said. In chapter 2, his target audience, at least for the first oh, 11 or 12, cha- 12 verses, is Jacob. Uh, he'll then expand it out to the rest of the family for the, the second half of the, of the chapter. But the fact that Jacob is the principal audience should tell us some things too. Now, to understand it though, we need to understand Jacob as a person. And we haven't had much opportunity to do so yet. Now, if you were raised with the Book of Mormon, you know him and you probably love him. But if this is your first read-through, we saw his name like once or twice. He was mentioned in passing as having been born in the wilderness, along with another little brother, Joseph. There's been a huge generation gap in some ways. And Sariah, almost as a Book of Mormon Sarah equivalent, has children in her old age and gives birth to Jacob and Joseph in the wilderness. But these are boys that have never known Jerusalem. Uh, and then when you meet them, when, you, when the, you see them again, it's on the ship, when the storm hits and chaos everywhere and, and Lehi and Sariah are so distraught they can't do anything even to help their youngest baby boys. We don't exactly know how old Joseph, or Jacob would have been by that point, but still young enough that he was relying upon mother for nourishment and, and father for safety. And yet now my older brothers are trying to kill another older brother and my parents are powerless to do anything about it. And can you imagine going through something like that? Talk about trauma. In fact, I'll put it this way. And this is something I hope you'll hold on to uh, in two weeks when we study 2 Nephi 6 through, through oh, 10, because that's all Jacob, even though it's in 2 Nephi. Nephi doesn't write it. Jacob does. Uh, I hope it follows us through when we get to the book of Jacob in a month or two. Because Jacob as a person, we need to know him personally if we're going to understand what he teaches us theologically. Uh, he, I love this guy. He's one of my absolute Book of Mormon heroes. My oldest son is named Jacob after him. I wanted to have a Jacob in my life, and, I, and the Lord blessed me accordingly. And I want you to wrestle with this too. Uh, I recently wrote, uh, a, there's a book coming out from the Religious Study Center at BYU called Jacob. Uh, and it's a bunch of religion professors who study the Book of Mormon a- academically and teach it professionally who decided to take on Jacob and, and analyze every little aspect that we could and, and draw out some kind of understanding in who this amazing Book of Mormon writer was. Uh, when I took, I, I took a stab at it as well, and I decided to 
to study Jacob from the perspective of mental health. Uh, we have uh, a big history of that in our family and struggles left and right. And that is such a common challenge with so many people I know and love that I wanted to, to allow Jacob, the prophet, to help us navigate some of our mental health challenges because he may have had some of those himself. Uh, it's no one, I'll put it this way. No one in the, in the scripture mentions the word anxiety more often than he does. And I'll, I'll say it's not wise for us to clinically diagnose people in the past because they're not present to explain all the details of what's going on internally. But there is enough evidence in what we do have before us on the page to suggest that he has something to teach us along those lines. I remember learning about the ACEs quiz from my wife as she works with people in addiction recovery who have been through so much trauma that they've turned to drugs of choice to just try to escape their own lives. And the ACEs quiz, ACE stands for Adverse Childhood Experience. And there's this test you can take, it's available online, where you just see how many adverse childhood experiences have you had. And the higher the number, the more prone you will be to PTSD and major anxiety disorders and things like that because you've been through so many hard things in your childhood. And if you were to ask Jacob, the ACEs, if, you were, if he were to take the ACEs quiz, it's scary how many adverse childhood experiences he's been through. So there is already some trauma that the adversity he has faced is going to lead him to feel some anxiety about personal safety, about, am I going to be able to navigate life? It's hard, hard things he's been through from the start. There's another aspect in terms of anxiety sometimes comes from a sense of scrupulosity, which is religious OCD. This sense of like germophobia where anything I touch is going to contaminate me. And so I'm washing my hands constantly. Well, scrupulosity is the spiritual version of that. And such an oversensitivity to sin that everything is damning me. And there are evidences and instances in Jacob's ministry where you worry, is he taking sin even too seriously? Uh, the way he describes things. Is he haunted by this in ways that you don't see other Book of Mormon prophets or biblical prophets wrestling with to that degree. The other issue I would call pastoral perfectionism. And there is a sense most of the times that, that Jacob specifically uses the word anxiety, it's anxiety over his leadership role. And am I doing this well enough? And am I a good enough leader? And I am... Am I going to trip up over my over-anxiety over you? Or am I going to be able to get through this next sermon? I mean, it's fascinating once you start seeing the evidences uh, of this. Um, I'm, a, I'm soon to do a podcast interview for the Why Religion podcast, which is a beautiful podcast if you have time to check that out. It's awesome. Uh, it's interviewing BYU professors about gospel scholarship that they are working on and writing and publishing. And a friend reached out and said, hey, can we interview you about your Jacob chapter uh, on the Why Religion podcast? I'll let you know when that comes out. But uh, this is a preview of it because we're first, for the first time we're meeting Jacob here. And, and we're going to see a careful parent tailoring his teachings 
to a very sensitive soul in his son Jacob. What he chooses to teach him, as opposed to the way he taught Laman and Lemuel in the, in the last chapter, Lehi doesn't have to say to this sensitive son, come on, son, arise from the dust and be a man. It's like, nope, that's, that's for your older brothers. Uh, I'm not going to weigh, I'm not going to add any burden to the weight you already feel, son. Uh, your, your spiritual sensitivity is something I worry about. Your spiritual sinfulness, I don't. Okay, you, you're, you, you're too concerned about that already. Uh, I'm not going to add to your burden. I'm going to try to lift it. I'm to try to, going to try to bless you here. Okay, uh, if you were wired toward justice, I'm going to emphasize mercy. I'm going to, I'm going to try to prove some contraries here with you, son. I'm going to try to balance you out. Uh, and so the things that Lehi is going to teach him and us in Second Nephi chapter two are some of the most beautiful things you could possibly read in Scripture. Especially for any Jacob-like souls out there. This is your chapter. Uh, and I pray it blesses you in the way that Lehi intended it to bless his son Jacob. With that, let's begin to read it. And the first two verses help us kind of establish just how traumatic Jacob's childhood must have been. Now, Jacob, I speak unto you. Thou art my firstborn in the days of my tribulation in the wilderness. Interesting, he would refer to him as a new firstborn. It's like Lehi had two lives. One was a really easy, good one back in Jerusalem. He was so wealthy that Laban envied his riches, right? And so picture Laban as the firstborn in the days of prosperity. Meanwhile, Jacob is the firstborn in the, the lean years, the rough times which means Jacob never knew good days. He is a child of, of desert sand and raw meat and going hungry and murmuring family members and storms at sea. And his whole life has been marked by that. It's what defines him. You are the firstborn of tribulation. Behold, in thy childhood, that's what made me think about that, child, that adverse childhood experiences quiz. In thy childhood thou hast suffered afflictions and much sorrow because of the rudeness of thy brethren. I understand what you've been through, son. You have every reason to feel traumatized in the most painful of ways, but he doesn't stop there. He honors his son's pain but he does so in order to validate his experiences, but then point him in a more positive direction emotionally, psychologically. He says in the very next verse, Nevertheless, so despite all you've been through, nevertheless, Jacob, my firstborn in the wilderness. Let me repeat that again. I know I'm not trying to take anything away from your past. I recognize that. I'm not trying to deny how hard it was. I'm not sugarcoating it. I'm not telling you to just buck up and cheer up and pull yourself up by your emotional bootstraps. No, son, you have every reason to mourn, to, to sorrow, to be anxious, to be depressed. I get it. You are my firstborn in the wilderness. Nevertheless, thou knowest the greatness of God, and he shall consecrate thine afflictions for thy gain. In some ways, this is a beautiful echo of what Nephi told us in the very first verse of the Book of Mormon. I have seen much affliction in the course of my days. 
Nevertheless, having been highly favored of the Lord in all my days. Nephi understood that. Nephi didn't seem to have the same emotional makeup as Jacob did. Uh, he'd lived so many years on the good side of things. And, and yet when things got rough, he realized God's hand was still there throughout it all. Lehi is recommending to Jacob, you've got to work to balance those same things as well. Honor your difficulties. Own them. But allow the Lord to own them too. Share them with him. And not to deny their difficulty, but to allow God to, well, to join him in the fellowship of his sufferings, as Paul taught, so that God can honor where you are, that he can come to know you and empathize with you, one with you in affliction, so that he can then consecrate those afflictions for thy gain. This is the Lord speaking comfort to Joseph Smith in Liberty Jail. Oh, I know what you've been through. I've been going through it with you. The Son of Man hath descended below them all. Art thou greater than he? Then adversity shall be for thine experience. It shall be for thy good. It's going to teach you and stretch you and give you empathy for other people. And he'll show that empathy when you get to Jacob, chapter 2 and chapter 3. Son, your hard things can be among your best things. So may I validate and empathize and help you see things with a, with a divine perspective. Often that's the best things, those are among the best things we can do for people who are suffering. People who are dealing with depression and anxiety. Can we honor what they've been through? But allow God to honor those things and sanctify those things. In some ways, it gives us something to give to him, because that's what consecration is. I can offer him my all. And we always talk about consecrating good things, our time and our talents and our money and our our means. But to consecrate him to him our worst things, that's a possibility too. I can give him my sins, and he can do something with that. I can give him my sufferings, my sorrows. I can give him my anxiety. I can give him my depression, and he can do something with it. For my gain and for the gain of other people beyond me. And that should actually give us hope through those sufferings. Because there's purpose now. There's meaning. And sometimes when our suffering feels meaningless, that's the worst. That's the the most unkindest cut of all. Dad is trying to help son get through all of this. Notice next what he says in verse 3. And this is even better. Wherefore, thy soul shall be blessed... So greater hope for the future. And thou shalt dwell safely, interesting word there, for someone who's been through so many brushes with death, you will dwell safely with thy brother Nephi. That's going to be key. Since father is about to pass away, leaving a much younger Jacob, probably feeling like an orphan, Lehi is basically handing the baton to Nephi with spiritual leadership, Familial leadership, if, if laymen won't take it in the right way, and to, it's like, look to your older brother. He'll be a father figure to you. He will keep you safe. And then this other beautiful promise, and thy days shall be spent in the service of thy God. So your life, no matter how hard it's been and will yet be, it will have meaning. It will have purpose. 
son, you're going to have a clear identity. And that will help you understand how to navigate life. You'll have a cause. You'll have a companion. It's going to be okay, son. That's, I sense so much of the... When, when Nephi says he was a tender parent to Laman and Lemuel, oh, that's nothing compared to the tenderness he shows to his most tender child. It's such a beautiful father-son moment here. And in some ways, what he says next is perhaps the tenderest of all. He says, Wherefore, I know that thou art redeemed. Now, pause. Do you see what he just said? Son, you made it. He doesn't even use the future tense. He uses the present tense. It's not just, you will be redeemed. Son, right now, thou art. I mean, is, has Jacob had his calling and election made sure? It almost sounds like it. Here's a father bearing testimony. I know that it's going to be okay for you. In fact, it already is. Son, let your soul be at peace concerning your spiritual state. Thou art redeemed. God, he's got you. In fact, the way he describes it, because of the righteousness of thy Redeemer, for thou hast beheld that in the fullness of time he cometh to bring salvation unto men. And what blows me away by this passage, to me it's one of the most beautiful things Lehi ever says, Son, you're going to make it, and it's not because of who you are alone. It's because of who Jesus is. It's because of the righteousness of thy Redeemer. Notice he didn't say, Son, I know you're going to make it because you're so good. Because you're so scrupulous and, and careful and, and committed. And you're, I mean, yeah, your perfectionism might be toxic, but at least it's, it's getting you as close to perfect as anyone I've ever seen. No, we've got to overcome that toxic perfectionism. We've got to overcome that scrupulosity. We have to have faith and trust and be a little more gentle with ourselves. And so what does he say? It's not your righteousness that's saving you, son. It's his. It's the righteousness of thy Redeemer. Now, please understand something here. Because I am trying to correct without overcorrecting, and that's the hardest thing we ever try to do. Martin Luther, for example, had similar insights when he studied Romans. And it was, it was those realizations that it's God's justice and God's goodness and God's righteousness. I simply have to have faith in that, and that's what saves me. So it's only faith. It's only grace. So sola fide, sola gracia. It's only that. It's not about my works. It's not about the Catholic sacraments. It's not about everything I've been trying to do to outmonk my fellow monks. Again, it's dangerous to diagnose. But you read about a young Martin Luther and scrupulosity and toxic perfectionism seem to describe him to the core. So no wonder the reassurance of the book of Romans would come like a breath from heaven to his troubled soul. 
The challenge is how do you correct without overcorrecting? Because if the Protestant Reformation in some ways was birthed in the moment of correcting from scrupulosity and toxic perfectionism, did it tend to overcorrect over time to the point that they don't want to touch works with a 10-foot pole? That is the danger beginning to presume upon his grace. Remember, that's why Paul always said, God forbid, I'm trying to swing the pendulum back to middle, but not overswing it to the opposite side. And every time he says, God forbid, he's trying to, it's bumper bowling, right? Don't swing it too far. Uh, We are not presuming upon his grace. We're not looking for cheap grace or easy salvation or sloppy agape, as they say, to quote the the Greek. Uh, We are not putting it on Jesus' tab and living like hell despite the fact we've been guaranteed heaven. No, that is not what we're doing. Paul was firmly against that. Martin Luther himself actually was firmly against that. Unfortunately, much of culture beyond beyond Reformation Day led to that extreme. And that is not what, what the Book of Mormon is trying to teach us to do here. God forbid, Lehi would say. That's actually why I find it fascinating that who's he speaking to? This is a verse in 2 Nephi 2, not 2 Nephi 1. He does not say this to Laman and Lemuel. He doesn't tell them, hey, you're redeemed because of the righteousness of thy Redeemer. He came, or he'll come in the fullness of times to bring salvation unto men. And so, hey, just hold out hope. He's going to come and work out all the kinks. Erase all the blemishes automatically and unconditionally save you. No, that would be the worst possible thing for a layman and Lemuel to do. It's like, whoo, thanks for that. I was starting to get out of bed. I was starting to awake and arise and shake off the chains of hell. But now that you tell me that they're just going to magically disappear through Jesus anyway, and it's, I mean, he's the one that's going to stay awake and get all the work done and not ask me to do anything. Sweet. Hit the snooze bar and I'm, I'm back to my faith fatigue. I'm back to my spiritual lethargy. No, Laman and Lemuel cannot afford to hear words like this. But Jacob? Jacob deserves to hear them. He needs to hear them. And for anyone who is too hard on themselves, not, again, these are not words for those that are too easy on themselves. I see this all the time in my, in my own students. I always warn them because so much of what I do with them in class is self-assessed. And they got to tell me how hard they're, they're trying. And I always warn them, you better be self-aware as you self-assess. Because if you're too hard on yourselves, please ease up. If you're too easy on yourselves, lean in the direction of justice and try a little harder. It, it's, we got to know where we are on the spectrum. And Laman and Lemuel were on the more apathetic side of the spectrum, presuming upon grace. Right? Why is dad judging the people of, of Jerusalem? They were righteous, just like we are. We, we give our token sheep or our ox at the temple. And so, yeah, put it on the head of the sacrificial animal, and it's all good to go. We, we, we can afford to break the moral law because we've been keeping the ceremonial law, and that's all good. And if Jesus is going to come, this Redeemer you're talking about, dad, if he's going to come to bring salvation unto men, if it's his righteousness that redeems us, then sweet, there's the scapegoat for us. And so again, we can do whatever we want. Oh, God forbid.
I will never teach this principle to you, Laban and Lemuel. But Jacob, who's already trying so hard, to the point of whether it comes to self-loathing for the smallest of sins, when it comes to, if it comes to a point of hopelessness because you'll never measure up, I know you're trying. In fact, I fear that you're running faster than you have strength. So for you, my dear, sweet, overly sensitive soul, thou art redeemed because of the righteousness of thy Redeemer. He will come to bring salvation to men, men like you, men who've already arisen from the dust, men that are shaking constantly, not just to get rid of the chains of hell, they've already fallen off, but shaking out of fear that the chains will ever come back. I'm not worried about you, son, ever presuming upon the Lord's grace, or I probably wouldn't say it so clearly here to you either. I'm worried about the opposite extreme. I'm worried about your sense of justice becoming a sense of judgmentalness and self-condemnation that will be self-defeating. So no, for you, you deserve words like this. Christ comes to help people like you, to save people like you. That's why, because of his righteousness, you're already saved. And I have a feeling if you can just take that worry off the table, you can enjoy the journey. You can just trust in God and, and not beat yourself up over the tiny little mistakes that you make. You'll be able to lead in love instead of self-loathing. You'll be able to be a perfect pastor instead of struggling with pastoral perfectionism. He's a good shepherd. And you don't have to be a trembling sheep or a trembling shepherd. So, what else can I tell you? Verse 4. Thou hast beheld in thy youth his glory. How do you think you survived that difficult childhood, son? So, yes, as you grow up, please don't grow out of your faith. You know what he's like. You've seen him. You've seen his Glory. Go back to what he said in, the, in chapter 1, where I've seen his glory, yes, but I've also been encircled about eternally with the arms of his love. By mentioning only one, I wonder if he's hinting at something with Jacob. I'm grateful you are awed by his glory, but please be assured by his love. If God for you is all infinite and no intimate, oh, no wonder you're going to drive yourself crazy with the kind of concerns that the over-anxious often feel toward God, a distant God, an angry God, a judging God. You've seen his glory. Please move in the direction of being embraced by his love. He goes on, Wherefore thou art blessed even as they unto whom he shall minister in the flesh. It's like, if he were here personally, if you were alive for that when he comes to the Americas, he would reassure you in every possible way. Let him do it now, okay? As if he were right here with us. For the Spirit is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So let the Spirit reconfirm it, reassure you. And then this beautiful promise. And the way is prepared from the fall of man, and salvation is free. 
Again, I would never say that to Laman and Lemuel. But to you, Jacob, these are words you need to hear. The way is prepared. What did Jesus say about himself? I am the way and the truth and the life. Just come. I'll show you how to get there. I'll lead you along. For him to say that salvation is free, that's amazing too. This, this sense of it's not something you have to earn, Jacob. It's not, because if it were, then I would owe it to you. And I don't want it to be a debt I'm paying. I want it to be a gift I'm giving. That's why I have to keep it free. And if you'll simply freely come unto me and lovingly accept the gift I'm lovingly giving, then salvation is yours. You can be trusted with it. You're not, on the one extreme, presuming upon my gift of grace. But on the other extreme, you're not working yourself ragged in some, kinds of, some kind of works righteousness mentality where you owe me a debt and have to pay it off before I will pay you with the debt of salvation. That's not how it works. For you, son, what you need to know is that salvation is free. Just accept it. In some ways, when you think about what Adam and Eve were taught, right after the fall, when the angel comes and explains the law of sacrifice, it's all Jesus. And you can be redeemed. You and all your posterity. Just come. Just learn. Think about what Peter said last year in the, our New Testament study, that Jesus was the lamb without blemish prepared from before the foundation of the world. So even before there was a creation, which means even before there was a fall, there was an atonement firmly in place. Jesus having promised to do what the Messiah would have to do. And we knowing he would be able to do it. Okay, The way is prepared. From the fall of man, the Lord knew you wouldn't be perfect, son. That's why he's not demanding that you be that. Remember, perfect, be therefore perfect. The word simply means fully developed. It means grown up. It means you eventually got there. And the Lord has all the time in the world to help you get there. Don't procrastinate the day of your repentance. That's what Laman and Lemuel would do. Son, Jacob, I know you're not. I just worry that you're procrastinating the day of your reassurance. You're procrastinating the chance. You're pushing back God and saying, nope, you can't reassure me yet. I'm not there yet. I haven't paid you back. I haven't paid it off. I, have, I don't deserve it. Son, I know, no, I don't, don't, don't give me any false hopes, Dad. I'm fallen. Son, the way was prepared from the fall of man. The answer preceded the problem. <laughs> the cure was in place before the disease in some ways, the disease was simply there to point us to the cure. Because the cure, <laughs> oh, that holiness that Christ can bring is so far beyond the innocence we might have thought of holding on to on our own. Okay? We'll talk about this so many more times in the Book of Mormon this year. King Benjamin teaches this absolutely beautifully. Alma does an incredible job of this. It's, but this is our first brush with this kind of reassuring doctrine. And it's coming to Jacob, who needs it most. Okay? You, I, I hope this is sinking into the soul. These are such beautiful things. I've talked to students 
over the years who have come to me and shared some of their wrestles with scrupulosity, some of their feelings of forever falling short, and their toxic perfectionism just trying to, if, there, if we could replace that with a faith in being perfected in Christ. I've told them before, the Book of Mormon is a cure for scrupulosity. The Book of Mormon is a cure for toxic perfectionism. It's intended to be that for Jacob, these kinds of words of reassurance. So many of the letters of Paul are meant to do the same. Okay, But to see this kind of language here, I had a student once come to me after a class was over. All the students had left, and he came to me just kind of distraught, and he said with brutal honesty, Brother Halverson, you're one of the best teachers I've ever had, but I leave your class every single time feeling totally hopeless. And I was blown away by that. I said, whoa, 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 do you have to leave right now? Because I'm afraid the first thing you said was not true, but that the second thing totally is. And that's never my intent to leave you hopeless. So please help me understand where you're coming from. And when he described to me his upbringing, and speaking of the ACEs quiz, talk about childhood trauma when it comes from emotional abuse. His parents had made it painfully clear since childhood that He'd made their life worse, not better. That they never intended to have him. And honestly, the way he described things, I was just grateful he was still alive. But as he described my class and why it sucked the hope out of him, he said, every time you talk about commandments or repentance or how God wants us to live, I know I'm falling short and I'll never live up to it. And what, what hope is there for me? And I tried to explain to him the concept of proving contraries. I tried to explain to him the infinite and the intimate, the dust and the divine. I tried to explain justice and mercy and said to him, every lesson I teach will have both sides intermingled. Because some students in my class take it easy on themselves and need to be told about justice. Whereas other students in this class are too hard on themselves and need to be reassured with mercy. The challenge for you, my friend, and through no fault of your own, your life has been so hard that you have grown deaf to the reassurance of grace. You've grown deaf to mercy because mercy can be screaming in your ear and you either can't hear it or you assume it's speaking to someone else. Whereas you can hear justice like a pin drop from miles away, and it's deafening. So what I said to him, my dear friend, please know that at every class I will be teaching both sides. Because I have a mixed multitude in front of me every day. When you hear justice, when you hear try harder and run faster, please know you are not the intended audience. In fact, if you need to get up and walk out of the room, be my guest. I just hope you come back in in time to hear the rest of the lesson about mercy. And please know that, yes, you are the intended audience for that part. I hope, my dear friends, that you and I are sufficiently self-aware to self-diagnose where we are on the spectrum. And either know that these words are meant for you, you Jacobs, or not, you Lamans and Lemuels. 
Oh, I doubt there's any of you out there. But if, if you're already a little too merciful, go back and read chapter 1. And arise from the dust and be men or women of God. If you're more like Jacob, then stick with chapter 2. And please be reassured by the gift of salvation that a Redeemer offers us because that's what he came to do. You with me? If so, then we're ready for the rest of the chapter. Because this so far has been the, these first four verses, words of reassurance to Jacob. And now I need to teach you, and soon, the other boys. I'll bring them in by the end of the lesson. Okay? It's tricky because by, when you read verse 11, it's clear that he's still talking to Jacob because he refers to him again as my firstborn in the wilderness. But by the time you get to verse 14, he says, my sons, plural, so he's talking to everybody. That means the only two verses that are a question mark are 12 and 13. Are we still talking to Jacob or are we now talking to the rest of the family or are we transitioning somewhere between? I don't know. Okay, so keep your fingers crossed when we get to verse 12 and 13 and, and try to figure out the audience. But the rest of the book, or excuse me, rest of this chapter, whether it's directed to Jacob or the rest of the family, it's the plan of salvation. I start with these incredible words of reassurance about the atonement of Christ, the gift of grace. And again, that's what you need. To, I need to foreground that part of the, of the plan with you, son. Okay? Uh, in the book of Abraham, when it says, hey, there's space there. We're going to go make an earth, and, and we're going to test people and see if they'll obey. That's not, how ja that's not how Lehi is starting the plan of salvation lesson with Jacob. Okay? It's like, no, let's talk about free salvation and the gift of grace and your saved by the righteousness of thy Redeemer, okay? Let's be very Lutheran to, to Jacob at the start because you've already got the background that's going to be able to keep things in a proper balance, okay? But from here on out, let's talk about the basic principles of the plan of salvation, which include creation and fall and atonement, and particularly the gift of agency that runs throughout the whole thing. We're creating a place where you can exercise agency, the fall comes as a result of agency exercised and as an expansion of the opportunity to continue exercising agency with real consequences that come as a result. And then the atonement, obviously, is there to protect the gift of agency so that it stays a gift and not a curse. Through the atonement, you can learn from your use of agency rather than merely being condemned by your misuse of agency. You understand? And so... The rest of this chapter, keep an eye out for agency in the plan of salvation, but also keep an eye out for all its constituent parts, all the ingredients that go into agency. Too often we just say, oh, what's agency? Oh, it's the, 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 we're free to choose. And he'll use that exact language in this chapter. But agency actually has so many subparts, uh, and Lehi's going to list them all. I've never seen it done better. That's why Alma draws on it and list, gives the same list in Alma chapter 12. We'll get there, I don't know, the summertime. Uh, but for us to, to see what he's doing, I'll try to point it out. And at the end of today's lesson, I'll do a quick summary with a chart, uh, <laughs> complete with chart, to be able to, to make sure we understand it all. But let's start in verse 5, okay? And when you look at these elements of agency, realize that when Satan waged an all-out war against agency and premortality. He wasn't just fighting against choice in general. He was fighting against every sub-ingredient as well. 
Okay, think about how he still does that in your life and you'll get some interesting insights. But verse 5, men are instructed sufficiently that they know good from evil. Okay? Now again, even there we see a departure from what he was saying in the first three verses. Salvation is free. If it's free, why do I even need instruction? Uh, why, isn't it just, here's the gift? Do I need an instruction manual to open it? What do you mean by this? So yes, there's, salvation is free, but there are some instructions for us to be able to receive it in a proper way. Okay? Where again, we're not presuming upon His grace. God forbid there. So let's talk about instruction. Next, the law is given unto men. Mm, so there's another element of agency that's absolutely important to keep in mind. That there are rules here. There are commandments to keep. God does have an opinion here. In fact, it's not even opinion. It's absolute truth. And so there is a law that lets us know how we should be living. Now, I know this isn't saying anything new to you, son. In fact, in some ways, Jacob, you're haunted by law. You're worried that you're not keeping it well enough. You're on the opposite extreme of Laman and Lemuel's perspective on law. But let me tell you this about it. By the law, no flesh is justified. Or by the law, men are cut off. Yea, by the temporal law, they were cut off. And also by the spiritual law, they perish from that which is good. They become miserable forever. And perhaps there Jacob's like, oh yeah, I understand that misery. It's like, no, no, no. But what I'm trying to say to you, son, I'm not trying to rub salt in the wound by mentioning law here. I'm trying to let you know that the law isn't going to save anybody. Not even you, who lives it as close to perfect as anyone I've ever seen, son. No, the law isn't what's going to justify us, because nobody can live it. Which makes us wonder, then why did he give it at all? Again, for that, go back to the book of Romans, where Paul said, The law came to shut every mouth, to shut the mouths of self-justifiers, or to shut the mouth, Jacob, in this case, from those that keep beating themselves up over failing at it, but then keep pleading for one more try, just one more chance. I swear I'll be perfect from now on. No, the law shuts that mouth too. Because no one has ever lived it perfectly, except one. And that's this righteous Redeemer through whose righteousness we can be saved. There's no other way. We'll talk more about this, again, throughout our Book of Mormon study this year. But if there is an abyss that separates God from fallen humanity, how do we swing across that abyss? On our own righteousness? That's why when we studied the Book of James last year, I talked about the law, not as a rope, but as a chain. And the chain has links, and each link is a law in the law, one of the commandments. And if you break any link, the chain no longer serves. And thus I cannot be saved by law alone. The law stands there almost as the, the guardian of the gate to say, you can't come in on your own. Because the point was for you to never come in on your own initially. That was never the case. You were always supposed to come to know Jesus. You only come in with him. That's the way prepared from the foundation of the world. And so if the law is there to cure you of your delusions of self-sufficiency? It does a heck of a job, doesn't it, son? He's like, oh yeah, painfully good at that. Well, accept it then. 
come to grips with the fact that you'll never be perfect. If that doesn't cure you from toxic perfectionism, I, I don't know what does. To know, to know that perfectionism does not work. It was never intended to. And so, wh where does that leave me then? Okay, it leaves you with the recognition and the admission the law is not what's there to save me. It needs to exist. It's there to teach me the ropes and to teach me the rules. I need to be instructed in that. And I have been. I've been instructed sufficiently to know good and evil. But it's not a, a perfect adherence to the good that's going to save me because I can't do it. Jesus did. He swung across the abyss with a chain with every link holding. When he, when he swings back to, to save us, he doesn't come with a blowtorch or an ironing, you know, a, a welding torch to, to, to solder our links back together. It's like, oh, thanks. This time I'm going to do it perfectly. No, he's come back to say, nobody does it perfectly. Mine's the only chain that's ever held. So I'll keep holding that chain. But can I hold you too? Will you hold on to me? If you do, my salvation's free. You just got to come and make a covenant. You got to promise to hold on for dear life because I am the life. And I'll bring you back to God. That's all I'm asking you to do. The law will not save you. But there has to be a law that I've kept. Okay? And that will teach you how to hold on to me. I'm not like the chain that is as weak as its weakest link. I'm trying to link myself to you. Will you do the same? The law is showing you how. And Jacob is going to teach about how the law does that in a beautiful way in chapter 10. Nephi is going to build on that. It's like he's quoting his little brother when we get to chapter 25. So much of what we'll see in the rest of 2 Nephi is based on these kinds of truths. So we've got to get them crystal clear. Okay, what elements are we seeing so far? You got to have law, what's something right and wrong, and you got to have instruction. What I want us to start seeing is picture agency as education. And for education to mean something, I have to learn stuff. I've got to be instructed and I have to, there have to be right and wrong answers. Because if there's no wrong answers, then I'm never going to study. I don't care about the instruction. It doesn't mean anything. Uh, it's not that the professor is trying to fail me out of school. He's trying to get me to learn as much as she or he knows, right? That, that's what a good professor is doing. And so there's got to be instruction. There have to be right and wrong answers. But I have to be taught which ones are right so I can recognize which ones are wrong. Starting to make sense? Keep going. Verse 6 and 7. Wherefore, redemption cometh in and through the Holy Messiah. Let me bring you back to that. Because I'm afraid that even my mention of law has freaked you out again. Uh, it's a trigger word for you, son. So let me, let's bring you back to the Holy Messiah. For he is full of grace and truth. And grace is the mercy side. Truth is the justice side. And he balances them to perfection. He's full of those things. In fact, he's so full of grace... That there's no room for anything ungracious in him. And he's so full of truth that there's no room for anything untruthful. So he's perfectly proven those contraries. Strikes the ultimate balance. And, there he, and thereby he knows exactly which side of the spectrum he needs to nudge us towards. Okay? So he's full of grace and truth. Behold, he offereth himself a sacrifice for sin to answer the ends of the law. 
And he does that unto all those who have a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Unto none else can the ends of the law be answered. Now, can you think of how comforting that news would be for Jacob? What's needed, son, is not unerring obedience, but rather true contrition. It's not that you've never struggled. It's that you turn to the Lord when you do. What the Lord is asking for is your heart. Give it to him. The fact yours is already broken, son, is a good thing. That's the kind of heart the Lord prefers. In fact, it's the only kind of heart he can accept. Because hard hearts are never, never given to him. So, son, this, the law in some ways, again, it's not just to shut the mouth, like Romans says. It's to break the heart. It's to let us know. It, it's to, we have to admit, I need help. That's all I've been after. Because Jesus can do things with you that you could never do on your own. Remember, holiness is higher than innocence. Atonement far surpasses Eden as far as elevation is concerned. But to go from Eden to atonement, you had to pass through the fall on the way. There's the story arc of life. There's the plan of salvation. There's the stages of faith. And to go from your innocence which sadly, much of it was taken from you, from the rudeness of your brothers and the difficulty of life. You had to grow up fast, son. I'm sorry for that. But don't beat yourself up for being in this false stage of life because what lies ahead is better than what, lie, what, 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 what lay before. You with me, son? The holy Messiah is full of grace and truth. He will sacrifice himself so you don't have to beat yourself up over it. There doesn't have to be some kind of the wrong kind of self-sacrifice where it's now self-harm. That's not what we're looking for. What the Lord is looking for is your broken heart and your contrite spirit because that's the only kind of people He can save. Your savable material, son. He's already saved you. Where does that leave us in our education analogy? There are right and wrong answers. And I've been taught which is which. Uh, what happens when I choose the wrong one? Oh, redemption. There's going to be an eraser on that number two pencil. And you can erase any mistake you make through the blood of the Lamb. He will purge it out. And instead of marking up your test with red ink, He covers it with red blood. And somehow through His atoning miracle, Though your sins be as scarlet, the paper, when all is said and done, is as white as snow. Remember that, son. Then, verse 10, he speaks of final judgment. Since, yes, there is a grade given at the end of the semester. And he talks of the inflicting of the punishment, which is affixed. Which punishment that is affixed is in opposition to that of the happiness which is affixed. To answer the ends of the atonement. And then he takes that specific statement, opposition between punishment and happiness. There's your pass or fail. And he generalizes it to a statement of principle about opposition in general. This is really important. You know this verse. For it must needs be that there is an opposition in all things. If not so, my firstborn in the wilderness. That's how we know he's still speaking to Jacob here. 
Righteousness could not be brought to pass, neither wickedness, neither holiness, nor misery, neither good, nor bad. Wherefore, all things must needs be a compound in one. Wherefore, if it should be one body, it must needs remain as dead. Might as well never even come to life, right? Having no life, neither death, nor corruption, nor incorruption, happiness, nor misery, neither sense, nor insensibility. That's why opposition is required through everything. Now, sometimes we misquote that and refer to opposition as tribulation or adversity. And I'll admit, that applies very, very well to Jacob. His whole life has been opposition along those lines. So yeah, there's going to be, there's going to be gravity in this world, pulling you down, hard things to get through, wading through your affliction, like we saw in 1 Nephi. But the kind of opposition that Lehi is speaking of specifically here is just the opposition of opposites. That there is life and death, corruption and incorruption, happiness and misery, sense and insensibility, option A and option B, and then C, all of the above, and D, none of the above, and it's like, ah, we're back to our education analogy. Yeah. There have to be wrong answers, son. There has to be right answers, too. The, the law just establishes which one are the right answers. But there have to be some wrong answers as well to provide for an actual test experience. Now, don't forget, I'm providing instruction that men are instructed sufficiently to know the difference. You came to class, right? I didn't spring the final exam on you on the first day. No, I instructed all semester long. We had review sessions. I had a study guide. That's what we're studying right now. And I've tried to prepare you. On the final exam, please know there will be right answers, and the law specifies which ones they are. But I can't just... <laughs> there, it has to be a multiple-choice test, not a single-choice test. Because if the law says what the right answer is, and that's the only choice I give you, then that's not an exercise in anything. There's no agency there. That's not really an exam. So there have to be opposite answers. Okay? Are you with me so far? There's going to be opposition in all of these things. Because as he says in verse 12, without it, what's the point? He says, wherefore, it must needs have been created for a thing of naught, something for nothing. Wherefore, there would have been no purpose in the end of its creation. Wherefore, this thing must needs destroy the wisdom of God and the eternal purposes and also the power and the mercy and the justice of God. You see what, Le what Lehi is saying there? What's the point of, an, of a class if you didn't have to learn anything? This, this is actually trying to prove the point against Lucifer's plan and his fight against agency and premortality. It was like, what would the point have been? Again, Lucifer was all about leveraging risk and trying to scare us into following his way because he was guaranteeing us a round trip. If you follow me, yes, you'll leave the presence of God, but I promise you'll come right back. The Father's plan includes agency. Oh, that's a horrible idea. Because people will misuse it, and then they don't get to come back. And then, oh, you really want to gamble your eternity on how well you're going to live your mortality? I don't like the odds, especially you. I mean, I've grown up with you for eons, and yeah, I, I, don't, I don't like your odds, little brother, little sister. Well, the... Illogic of Lucifer's plan was, okay, we're going to leave and then come right back in the same condition we left? Why did we leave in the first place? If the point was not just to be with God, but rather to be like God, 
then yeah, we've got an education to acquire. We've got some growing up in God to do. And if you're just kind of keeping us in some protective bubble and keeping us from skinning our knees or, or growing up and learning things and developing some strength and building some muscles and, and yes, learning from our mistakes. If you're going to isolate us and insulate us and inoculate us from all of those kinds of dangers, why would we leave? We're already here. We might as well just stay. And that's the point Lehi's making in verse 12. Then he does something interesting in verse 13. He argues to the absurd in order to defend and, and confirm what he's explained so far. Here's how, how the argument works. 13. If you say there is no law, and remember, verse 13 is in between the clear confirmation that I'm still talking to Jacob in 11 and the clear expansion in verse 14 that I'm talking to everybody else. So 13 is one of these questionable verses about who are you talking to here? If, when he says, if you say there is no law, now Jacob never would have thought that, okay? But Laman and Lemuel might. Laman and Lemuel might have said, hey, the, the moral law is trumped by the ceremonial law. As long as you keep that one, then who cares about the rules God gives us? It's totally fine. And so let me, let's push that then. Fine, Laman. Glad you're, you're, you're coming in. Glad you weren't here to hear what I said to Jacob back in verse 3 and 4. But glad you just heard what I said in, in verse 11 and 12, okay? Let me speak to, to everybody here. If you say there's no law, fine, let's take it to the next step. I'm trying, to re, I'm trying to argue toward the absurd. Then you'll also say there is no sin. Because if there's no answer key, that's the law, then it doesn't matter what you, what you put on the test, right? Put in, fill in any bubble you want. It doesn't matter. There's no failing grades. Next, if you shall say there's no sin, well, you shall also say there is no righteousness. Because remember, you've got to have opposites to compare. Nobody's tall unless there's somebody short, and vice versa. So if there's nothing that designates something as sinful, then what is there by way of com comparison to identify what, what's righteous? Now, next step. If there be no righteousness, well, there be no happiness. Because honestly, believe me, I, I partook of the fruit. Real joy, true happiness comes from being connected to God. And it's righteousness that defines what that connection looks like. So no righteousness? Well, there went happiness. And if there be no righteousness nor happiness, there be no punishment nor misery. Now, Laman and Laman might perk up like, great, that's what we're trying to avoid. It's like, no, but then you're throwing the whole thing out. If you're not getting rid of the bad, you've gotten rid of the good too. You just toss the baby with the bathwater. That's a problem. And in fact, since God does have absolute truth, and defines things by law, and clarifies and separates righteousness from wickedness. That's what God does from creation on. He separates light from dark, and sea from land. And yes, right from wrong. So if all of that is thrown out, then guess what you threw out too? You threw out God. That's what he says next. If these things are not, there is no God. And then the next logical step, or in this case, illogical one, if there is no God, then we are not. Neither the earth, for there could have been no creation of things, neither to act nor to be acted upon, wherefore all things must have vanished away. That is a fascinating argument toward the absurd. Uh, where it's just, let's find, if, this is, if the first step seems to make sense for you, let's follow it all the way through. And by the end, you're like, oh, no, I don't like that ending. 
I love the way he ends it too. It's like if there's no God, then what? Then there's no creation, and where the heck did we come from? Okay. Now, if you were to, if this is reduced, arguing to the absurd, if you go backwards, we can see the point that he's been trying to make all along. So at the end, the point is we exist. This is the Cartesian, I think, therefore I am. Okay, son, you with me on this? Lemuel, Lem, you listening in? Uh, we are here. So because of our existence, there must be a God behind it all. So we'll start with a Cartesian sense of self. We'll then go to the argument for, from design. Since there is a creation, there must have been a creator. Okay, And so now that we know that God exists, there must be moral absolutes. Because God establishes what righteousness and wickedness is. And since there are moral absolutes that define that, there are going to be rewards and punishments based on how we respond to that. Because yes, God does care how we live our lives. Our conscience itself should tell us that. Uh, I think it was Kierkegaard who said two great evidences for God as far as he was concerned, was, number one, the starry sky is above. That's the creation. We, we're here, as Lehi says. But the second was the moral law within. That my creation and conscience were the two pieces of evidence that Kierkegaard drew upon. And Lehi is teaching similar things. Okay? Creation, us, that there's rewards and punishments because there's good and there's evil and there's a feeling of right and wrong within us. And if that's the case, there must be a law to define those things from the very beginning. In short, yeah, there's a God and he cares how we live. So how are we going to live, sons? You going to rise from the dust? Laman and Lemuel? You going to trust in Jesus, Jacob? Because whether, you, whether you're too cold like Laman and Lemuel, and I don't have to repent, or whether you're too hot, like Jacob, I don't think I ever can repent. Either way, you're not repenting, and that's a problem. You're, you're not coming into Christ because you don't think you have to, or you're not coming into Christ because you don't think you can. Oh, my whole family, everyone gather in. I want to be crystal clear. I'm talking to all of you from this moment forward. There, there's a God above, and he's a God of justice, Laman and Lemuel. And he's a God of mercy, Jacob. He's a God of power, a God of plan, and we're in the middle of it as we speak. So let's live the plan well. The way he says it in verse 14 and 15, by way of quick review, now that the family's all gathered, now my sons, I speak unto you these things for your profit and learning. For there is a God, and he hath created all things both the heavens and the earth, and all things that in them are, both things to act and things to be acted upon, just like he said in the previous verse, and to bring about his eternal purposes in the end of man, to make class count, that is, after he had created our first parents and the beasts of the field and the fowls of the air, and in fine all things which are created, it must needs be that there was an opposition. Even the forbidden fruit in opposition to the tree of life, the one being sweet and the other bitter. You see how he's walking him through the plan now? We've seen creation. There's a God and he's a God of creation. And there's a fall. 
The fall is what took place when Adam and Eve began to exercise their agency and they were choosing between trees and they chose a tree that would expand on that agency. It extended the education. It brought more students to class. It, we were no longer auditing in pre-mortality. This class would count. Now, there are things to act and things to be acted upon. He's said that twice already. Uh, there are, there's a choice, but there are also consequences, and both come hand in hand. You were sent to earth to be the first, not the second. You were sent to choose, to act, but you cannot divorce that from the consequences of your choices. He's going to explain that at length later on. But as he's explaining this from the start here, creation and fall are clearly in place now. Uh, there is opposition in all things. By the way, some people, when they hear me talk about proving contraries, they say, oh, that's, that's the opposition in all things, right? Well, yes and no. In the concept of, of contraries, it's positive paradoxes, positive polarities, where both, both sides are equally good. That's justice and mercy. That's faith and works. In this kind of opposition, Lehi's been talking about good and evil. I don't want more evil so I can appreciate more good. Okay? It just has to exist so that I have a choice in front of me. Okay? It's not quite proving contraries. That's not what we're getting at here. But there have to be options. And you, my precious sons, all of you, Laman and Lemuel and Nephi and Sam and sons of Ishmael and, and Jacob, my dear son, and Joseph, I'll give you a whole chapter next week. I need you to understand that you are choosing for yourself. You're at school now. It all counts. And pretty soon I, as a TA, I'm going to graduate. And I won't be here much longer. So please choose well. Let me continue my explanation. Verse 16, Wherefore, the Lord God gave unto man that he should act for himself. There's agency in a nutshell. Wherefore, man could not act for himself, save it should be that he was enticed by the one or the other. Hmm. So, there's another ingredient for agency. You see, for choice to count, yes, there have to be choices, first of all. It's got to be a multiple choice test. But there has to be enticements in multiple directions. Sometimes you'll see in an exam, like an A, B, C, D, and one of those you know is the right answer. Three of them you know are not the right answer. One of them is often so out of left field that it's almost comical, and you're like, oh, thanks for the comic relief, professor, and thanks for making it a little easier on me, because now it's basically one out of three instead of one out of four. But man, these other... The three that are left are close enough to each other that it's not totally obvious which one's right. In other words, for this to be a real test, you see, if I'm writing an exam and it's four choices and three of them are so patently absurd that it's obvious, then it's not really a multiple choice t test at all and therefore it's not really a test at all. So the enticement aspect is the wrong answers mm, have to have something going for them. As I've often said to people that, are working, that I'm working with in faith crisis, your doubts do have a leg to stand on. That's the enticement towards skepticism. But I always tell them, your faith has a leg to stand on too. There's the enticement towards faith. 
why do people succumb to sin? Because it was solving some problem for them. It was just introducing worse ones. Again, ask my wife in the world of addiction recovery. But there are enticements, there are tugs and pulls, and that's, that's the course we signed up for. That's the opposition in all things. And yes, those, some of those wrong answers have to be semi-convincing so that our choices can be fraught with moral significance. Agency matters. This is serious stuff. God wants to see what we're made of, how we think, why we would choose option B instead of option C. Nobody was going to choose option D. Okay. Uh, why did you pick between these other ones? Then verse 17 and 18, I, Lehi, according to the things which I have read, must needs suppose that an angel of God, according to that which is written, had fallen from heaven. Wherefore, he became a devil, having sought that which was evil before God. You see, here Lehi is explaining the origin of evil. And I'm so glad he did, because it clarifies things in a beautiful way. God didn't create evil. That's been a question mark throughout so much of human history. It's like, well, it's here. And if everything came from God, then God must have created good, just like, then God must have created evil, just like he created good. But if he created both, which one is he? Uh, some kind of strange schizophrenic spirit that is pulled between his own poles? What's the problem? And Lehi says, no, that can't be it. But God who creates all things and then honors the agency of all things, Ah, that's how it happened. The good, which was God's original intent, became evil through, the, through its own choices. Okay, This angel had choice. With that choice, the angel chose to fall, and thereby he became a devil. And from that moment forward, sought what was evil before God and wanted the rest of us to become just as evil as he is. So that's what he says in the next verse. Because he had fallen from heaven and had become miserable forever. Remember, wickedness never was happiness, which means wickedness is misery. And Lucifer was feeling it, and misery loves company, so here he is. He'd become miserable forever. Thus he sought also the misery of all mankind. That's what he's been doing ever since. Wherefore, so consequently, he said unto Eve, yea, even that old serpent who is the devil, who is the father of all lies, wherefore he said, partake of the forbidden fruit, and ye shall not die, but ye shall be as God, knowing good and evil. And Lucifer, by, thus, by so doing, tempted our first parents, tricked them, beguiled them, but at the same time, <laughs> helped the plan move forward. Oh, there's the wisdom of God. There's the power of God. But by expanding agency for Adam and Eve in that moment, for allowing the rest of us to then access the education that God had set up, school is in session, my friends, and it's go time for us all. In verse 19 and 20, after Adam and Eve had partaken of the forbidden fruit, they were driven out of the Garden of Eden to till the earth. They have brought forth children, yea, even the family of all the earth. So here's the plan of salvation moving forward. And now that we're on board, verse 21, the days of the children of men were prolonged according to the will of God that they might repent well in the flesh. Wherefore, their state became a state of probation and their time was lengthened according to the commandments which the Lord gave unto the children of men. For he gave commandment that all men must repent for he showed unto all men that they were lost because of the transgression of their parents. 
Now, add one more ingredient to our growing list, and this ingredient is time. It's not going to be a, a quick class, okay? This is not just a, a one-hit wonder. It's not just that Adam and Eve show up on the first day and take a pretest, and that was close enough, we'll count it as your post-test and go ahead and pass. No, we are going to need to lengthen the semester to encompass a whole life. And with that time, it's going to be time to, pest, to test your patience. It's going to be time to try your faith. It's going to be time to stretch your perseverance. Time to prove what you really mean by all of this. Time is so significant. It'll give us a chance to show our resolve and deepen our commitment and develop some habits and change our nature. Ah, that, no wonder they had to be kicked out of the Garden of Eden, but also they had to, their time had to be prolonged. You can't eat the fruit of the tree of life now because that will end class early. You can't jump straight to a resurrection without any fear of death along the way. Uh, we, yeah, we, we, can't, we can't end the semester before it's even begun. So yes, you'll need to leave the garden and really wrestle over a lifetime with what kinds of choices you want to make to become the kind of character that God knows who you really are. Okay? Now, I'll admit there's a danger here with time, and I've talked about this with you before, uh, in Joseph Smith Matthew, or Matthew 24, when he talks about the signs of the times and the last days will be so wicked that if God does not shorten those days, there shall no flesh be saved. That's haunting. Uh, I've joked that it's wanting to run over to the scorer table and unplug the scoreboard when you're ahead, but the other team has all the momentum. It's like you look up there and you're like, oh no, they have enough time to come back and win. So can we end things early? And... Among the signs of the times, the Lord is basically saying, yeah, I'll end things early so that we win. But what does that say about this passage where time is lengthened, not shortened? And you see that God is caught between a rock and a hard place. That's his contrary to deal with. Do I end it fast so I save the people that are still on my side? Or do I lengthen the time so that the people that aren't on my side can come to their senses and come on over? The Lord loves his side, his sideline. And while they're getting nervous because the other team has momentum, he wants to pull the plug so that our side wins. But the, what he's wrestling with is the fact that he loves the people on the other sideline too. And maybe if I just give them a little more time, They'll run across the field and change jerseys and join me before I end things. We cannot procrastinate the day of our repentance because it's lengthening time that needed to be shortened. But on the flip side, God couldn't shorten things that needed to be lengthened because this has to be a test. We have to learn something. Now, from there, look at verse 22 and 23. Well, we're getting to some really famous passages in this chapter as Lehi gets to the end. He says, Now behold, if Adam had not transgressed, he would not have fallen. And you might think that's good news. It's like, hey, no, no wrong answers. Great. But here's the problem with that. He would have remained in the Garden of Eden. 
class never started. The, the game never began. And all things which were created must have remained in the same state in which they were after they were created. And they must have remained forever and had no end. And they would have had no children. Wherefore, they would have remained in a state of innocence, having no joy, for they knew no misery, doing no good, for they knew no sin. Now, don't read too much into that saying, oh wait, so is it children that teach us misery so that we can know joy? Is it children that oh, force us to sin on occasion so that we can end up prizing the good? I wouldn't go that far, okay? Oh, children bring us joy directly as well, not just by comparison. But to understand what Lehi is saying here, oh, his, his children have brought him both, that's for sure. But to understand from a divine plan perspective, the fall was just as necessary as the creation or the atonement. Class had to start sooner or later. There had to be a way for Adam and Eve to learn and grow. And there had to be a way for them to invite the rest of God's children to come to class also. And when there's pure innocence, there would have been no way for them to even know how to bring children into the world. So the fall was necessary. I sometimes chuckle to think of all of us in premortality, waiting. I don't know how long the garden lasted. Don't know how long before Eve finally partook and Adam chose to join her. But I can imagine our celestial impatience, like, come on, come on, almost there. I know this is going to be hard. We're falling. But at least we're falling forward. Please open the door. Please eat the fruit for crying out loud. Just let's the, let the plan move forward. And it finally did. In some ways, again, our existence is central to the plan. We've got to come to the place where we can exercise our agency. We have to skin our knee and, and get some bumps and bruises. We have to learn to grow up in God. And thank you, Adam and Eve, for allowing that to happen. Then verse 24 through 26. World famous. But behold, all things have been done in the wisdom of him who knoweth all things. Keep that as, as your baseline default understanding as you try to navigate all of this stuff yourself. Was the fall a tragedy? No, it was done in the wisdom of him who knoweth all things. Did, did they come out of left field and God's up there going, no, 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 no. Why did I put that tree there? Darn it. No, it's according to his plan, according to his wisdom. And Adam fell, why? That men might be. And men are, why? That they might have joy. We saw that connection back earlier when he was arguing toward the absurd. Well, here he's just saying it as plain and simple as he possibly can. We're here so we can learn to be like God. We're here to learn to be joyous. And that only comes through righteousness. And so for, righteousness, for joy to exist, righteousness had to exist. For righteousness to exist, there had to be the, its opposite, wickedness. We had to be placed in a place where we could choose between them with real enticement so it was actually an exercise of agency and not just some kind of pretend game we were playing. There had to be law. There had to be opposition. There had to be pulls away, but also a draw forward. That's where the atonement of Christ comes in. And that's where he what he teaches them next. It's so beautiful. It's not just that we quote 2 Nephi 2.25 all the time. Adam fell that men might be, and men are that they might have joy. We use it to almost encapsulate the plan. Do not stop with verse 25. 
In some ways, I wish there wasn't a new verse there or even a period, just a comma. In fact, maybe eliminate punctuation altogether so it's just one constant, seamless flow. That Adam fell that men might be, and men are that they might have joy, and the Messiah cometh in the fullness of time, that he may redeem the children of men from the fall. If you were to take 24 and 25 and the first line of 26 and combine it all, that's what it all boils down to. God knows what he's doing. So he created an earth so we could exist here. So we could fall here. So we could learn what real joy feels like here. And the only way we'll be able to do it successfully is through the atonement of Jesus Christ. Creation, fall, atonement. It's all right there. That's the wisdom of God. That's the justice and the mercy and the plan and the purpose of our all-knowing and all-loving Father in Heaven. That's why we're here doing what we're doing. So, verse 26, because they were redeemed, because that they are redeemed from the fall, they have become free forever, knowing good from evil, to act for themselves and not to be acted upon. Third time he said that. Ooh, one caveat. Save it be by the punishment of the law at the great and last day, according to the commandments which God hath given. In other words, the only time we're really supposed to be acted upon is at judgment. When the law of the harvest officially, permanently kicks in, and we finally pick up the other end of the stick that we picked up in life. Oh, I was... Unfortunately, so many people are constantly being acted upon and they don't think they get to choose. And they feel like they are pawns to circumstance or to emotion or to whatever it might be. And no, you're free to choose. You always have been. You're free forever. You came out of freedom. You can navigate life out of freedom. And though you might not always be able to choose your circumstances, you can always choose your response to them, your attitude in them, what you'll do with the, the hand you've been dealt. Do not abdicate that agency. Do not just go through life as if you were a passive pawn being acted upon. Because if that's the case, when judgment comes, the one moment that everyone will be acted upon, you won't like what ends up happening. Because that's not the kind of person God can save. You never came to him. Even those who have exercised their agency poorly at times, if they'll come to their senses and exercise it right by repenting, by accepting the redemption, the eraser that's at the end of your pencil, if you'll make those kinds of changes, then how will you be acted upon on judgment? All the righteousness you've sent out will come back to bless you. You've planted goodness. You'll harvest happiness. He makes it crystal clear in verse 27. Wherefore men are free according to the flesh, and all things are given them which are expedient unto man. All things. The classroom's been set up. The syllabus is done. Uh, all, you, you, everything in your backpack is, oh, it's like, it's like having your clothes laid out in, in front of your bed before the first day of class. Did you ever do that when you were young? Here it is. The curriculum is complete. It is 
celestially organized and administered. Just ring the bell and come to class. And are you ready to learn and become something? By the way, I hope this analogy doesn't haunt anyone that had negative experiences in school. If you had bad, bad times in school, it probably wasn't all as well prepared as it needed to be. But when God's the teacher, oh, come to class, okay? You'll be amazed at the educational experience. But then notice what he says. So all things are given unto them which are expedient unto man, and they are free to choose. Now here's your choices. Free to choose liberty and eternal life through the great mediator of all men, or option two, to choose captivity and death according to the captivity and power of the devil. For he seeketh that all men might be miserable like unto himself. Now that doesn't, speaking of enticement, that doesn't sound very enticing at all, right? And yes, this tender parent is trying to make it as clear as he can which choice he, his sons should be making. Unfortunately, Satan has a different approach and isn't as crystal clear in saying, oh, I mean, he doesn't want us to read the fine print. What is he offering us? Oh, misery and captivity and death. But no, he camouflages all of that with some interesting counterfeiting to the point that his side actually is enticing to us. And then he tries to say all kinds of things to scare us away from the enticements that God is giving to pull us in the right direction. But there we are caught between the poles, having to choose between them. So, in conclusion, verse 28 and 29, Now, my sons, I would that ye should look to the great mediator and hearken unto his great commandments and be faithful unto his words and choose eternal life according to the will of his Holy Spirit. Not choose eternal death according to the will of the flesh and the evil which is therein, which giveth the spirit of the devil power to captivate, to bring you down to hell, that he may reign over you in his own kingdom. It's like, okay, sorry. So I, I, I know I'm... I'm probably getting ahead of myself. But I care infinitely which side you choose, sons. Um, this isn't just A or B and it's all the same to me and do what you want to do. It, no, it's not that. You are free to choose. And I've honored your agency from the very beginning. From after the dream, notice Laman and Lemuel, I didn't drag you kicking and screaming to the tree. I know I couldn't. What did he say at the beginning of chapter 1? God's will be done, and His ways are righteousness forever. So I'm just going to leave you with Him and hope you know how to follow. I've spent my life trying to show you the way. But please, my boys, please choose well. I mentioned last week that we've got our Genesis and Exodus through First and Second Nephi. And here's our Deuteronomy, where Moses on Mount Nebo is... Speaking of blessings and curses to the house of Israel. And he even says it in conclusion. I have set before thee life and death. Let me make it that crystal clear. And in case you're wondering which side I would vote for. Let me make that crystal clear too. Wherefore choose life. Laman and Lemuel. Choose life. Jacob. Please know that life has already chosen you. Because you've chosen him. But all of my sons, all my sons and daughters, my grandchildren, my posterity here on this land of promise, please keep your promises with God. The choice is yours.
That's all I can offer. And so he says in verse 30, I have spoken these few words unto you all, my sons, in the last days of my probation. My bell's about to ring. My pencil's about to go down. But I have chosen the good part, according to the words of the prophet, and I have none other object, save it be the everlasting welfare of your souls. Amen. And that part of his Mount Nebo discourse is over. That part of his father's blessing is complete. Starting next week, he will teach Joseph some amazing things. And then Nephi will give us his glorious psalm, and then we'll see tragedy, as well as happiness, based on how people choose in chapter 5. Next week's lesson is incredibly important as well. But can I review a few parts from this one? Just briefly. Uh, this is our educational experience, right? This is our class. We've used that as our analogy. And every ingredient of agency that Lehi has laid out has some kind of parallel in our classroom. So let me give you the chart so you can see them all laid out before you. Here are Lehi's elements of agency in 2 Nephi 2. First, there's the simple power to act. There's your number two pencil. Okay? You get to actually participate in this exam. In verse 16, it's when he says, The Lord God gave unto man that he should act for himself. Okay? Pencil's yours. Second ingredient, choices. Namely, multiple choices. You have to be able to decide which one of all these answers is the best one. So, like you saw in verse 11, there must be an opposition in all things. Third ingredient, there has to be enticement. In other words, some well-written wrong answers. <laughs> Ones that look like they might be the one I should choose. Remember in verse 16, you had to be enticed by the one or the other to make this a real exam, right? Fraught with moral significance. Number four, there has to be law because every exam requires an answer key. Remember verse five, the law is given unto men. Ah, there is a right answer when all is said and done. It's not moral relativism. It's not pick whatever you'd like. Nope, there's an absolute truth, and it comes from a God of truth who cares how we live. Fifth thing, there must be instruction. Otherwise, it's completely unfair to have a test placed before you. We need class. We need test review. We need study sessions and, and tutoring time and everything else. So we're actually ready to take the test when it comes. Thankfully, verse 5, we are instructed sufficiently to know good from evil. Oh, thank heaven for that. Well, the next thing we have to include is consequence. There's got to be grades. There has to be an outcome for all of this. Otherwise, what was the point? Class would have been pointless. And like we saw in verse 10 and verse 22, again, there's a punishment affixed on the one side, and there's happiness affixed on the other. Otherwise we would all have been in the same state as before. Why even come to class? Well, two other things. One, absolutely obvious as, as far as how essential it is, and the other one maybe a little less so. But there has to be redemption. That's the eraser at the other end of our number two pencil. And it's the same pencil. It's the same instrument we're using. They are fused together. There's not one without the other. You cannot have power to act on our part, without power to atone on Christ's part. 
those two are inseparably connected. And so the redemption that has been promised us, that's what he said as early as verse 6, redemption cometh in and through the Holy Messiah. There's no other way. There's n I always tell this to my kids. Do not do your math homework in pen. Always do it in pencil. <laughs> always allow yourself the freedom to erase. And the Lord has done that for us by sending His Son. Now the last ingredient that must be there that unfortunately sometimes goes unappreciated is time. There is a clock on the wall in the testing center. There is something telling us that we have time to review our answers and use our eraser. But that time is not infinite. There is a balance of justice and mercy here. There is a balance of patience and persistence with some urgency as well. So as we saw in verse 21, the days of the children of men were prolonged, but careful about not prolonging it too long. You with me? This is God's classroom. As a professor myself, I wish I were as perfect in my pedagogy as God is in His. I am grateful He has instructed us sufficiently. I am grateful for the time we have. I am grateful for choice and consequence. I am grateful that I can act instead of having to constantly be acted upon. And more than anything, I am grateful, eternally grateful for the atonement of Jesus Christ. For any Jacobs out there that need reassurance, reread 2 Nephi 2 anytime you need to. Anytime you are over-anxious about your sins, when you are not just scrupulous, but succumbing to scrupulosity, not just striving to be perfected in Christ, but suffering from toxic perfectionism, this, this lesson is for you. In fact, this lesson is for everyone. That's why you've got to go back to verse 8. I kept this one... <laughs> as a grand finale. I skipped it on purpose, knowing we'd come back. Verse 8 takes all that Lehi is teaching in this moment and says, Wherefore, how great the importance to make these things known unto the inhabitants of the earth, that they may know that there is no flesh that can dwell in the presence of God, save it be through the merits and mercy and grace of the Holy Messiah, who layeth down his life according to the flesh, and taketh it again by the power of the Spirit, that he may bring to pass the resurrection of the dead, being the first that should rise. That to me is one of the best things that's ever been said. And in the context of an incredible Father's blessing, oh, my sons, make sure everyone gets this same blessing. That passage, by the way, was included in the verses specifically focused on Jacob, and Jacob will take that incredibly seriously. Oh yes, how great the importance to make these things known. Don't worry, Dad. I'll teach everything you just taught me to everyone else in chapter 9. Just wait. Oh, when Alma comes on board, don't worry, Father Lehi, I'll teach everything you taught in all the missions that I go forth. Whether it's public missions in chapter 12, whether it's private conversations with my own son in chapter 42, Everybody needs to know this. I'm honored that today I got the chance to make these things known unto a few of the inhabitants of the earth.
to be able to testify gratefully of the merits and mercy and grace of our holy Messiah. It's the only way we'll come home. It's not our merits. It's not that God owes us because we perfectly obeyed the law. It's not God's justice alone that saves us because we deserve it. It's God's grace that saves us because he loves us and wants to bring us home. If we can simply be humble enough to accept the gift. Humble enough to accept the grace. Meek enough to accept the merits of the Messiah. He is all-sufficient. Since we aren't. My dear friends, will you pay it forward? Will you make these things known unto other people? Will you share what you're learning? Will you teach it to your children? Will you share it in natural ways with your friends? Will you make sure that people understand what they came to class for? Because some people are looking around the classroom completely lost. I get that. Well, my friends, can I review this, these incredible two chapters? I'm amazed at how many lines I just wanted to hang on the wall. And so by way of quick review, just some phrases worth wrestling with and pondering and thinking about and writing about. Notwithstanding our afflictions, we have obtained a land of promise. Brought by the hand of the Lord. A land of liberty. They shall dwell safely forever. Power given them to do all things by faith. His infinite goodness. Awake from a deep sleep, yea, even from the sleep of hell. Hear the words of a trembling parent. I am encircled about eternally in the arms of his love. The anxiety of my soul from the beginning weighed down with sorrow from time to time. His will be done, for his ways are righteousness forever. That my soul might have joy in you. Arise from the dust, my sons, and be men. Determined in one mind and in one heart. Put on the armor of righteousness. Shake off the chains with which ye are bound whose views have been glorious. He hath sought the glory of God and your own eternal welfare. His sharpness was the sharpness of the power of the word of God, a true friend unto my son forever. Thou knowest the greatness of God. He shall consecrate thine afflictions for thy gain. Thy days shall be spent in the service of thy God because of the righteousness of thy Redeemer. He cometh to bring salvation unto men. The way is prepared from the fall of man and salvation is free. By the law, no flesh is justified. Redemption cometh in and through the Holy Messiah for he is full of grace and truth. 
how great the importance to make these things known. The merits and mercy and grace of the Holy Messiah. He shall make intercession for all the children of men. For it must needs be that there is an opposition in all things. Things to act and things to be acted upon. His eternal purposes in the end of man. The days of the children of men were prolonged that they might repent. Their state became a state of probation. Having no joy, for they knew no misery. All things have been done in the wisdom of him who knoweth all things. Adam fell that men might be, and men are that they might have joy, and the Messiah cometh in the fullness of time. Free forever, knowing good from evil. Free to choose liberty and eternal life. Look to the great mediator. I have chosen the good part. None other object, save it be the everlasting welfare of your souls. Now that last phrase comes from a loving father, Lehi, trying to reassure his sons. But in some ways it comes from a higher and holier source, namely a loving father in heaven, who has one goal in mind, one work and one glory, so that everything he does is with the aim of our everlasting welfare. I will forever be grateful for that. Because on days when I'm more like Laman, as well as days where I feel more like Jacob, God knows just what to say and just what to do to nudge me in the direction of repentance and reassurance. That's why everything must be situation-specific and therefore spirit-directed. Because the Spirit will let you know if today you should be reading chapter 1 or chapter 2. If today you need to move in the direction of justice or the direction of mercy. He does it all perfectly. He's set up the class to accomplish exactly that. And so may I leave you with my gratitude for what Lehi commended to his over-anxious son. Namely, the merits and mercy and grace of the Holy Messiah.